with the pandemic, we spend all of our time together. It's an honor. It's an honor. They say an honor. they say working together when you're married is you should count the years like dog years. We've been married for 70 years. Actually, 77. She's wrong. <laughs> there you go, 77. And I will tell you, nothing cements a relationship like having to spend three months in monsoon season in northern India working in a hospital. <laughs> we'll say that nothing cements a relationship like taking care of one person one-on-one -on -one in the throes of a diarrheal illness. <laughs> Those are the voices of Andrew Nerlinger and Lisa McDonald. Andrew and Lisa live in Austin, Texas. They're both trained physicians, and they met as classmates at Yale Medical School. In their first summer of med school, when they were both on fellowship grants in Chandigarh, India, doing research and working in a hospital neonatal intensive care unit, their love blossomed. Andrew adds vivid detail to the story of how they fell in love. If you really ever want to see what true human misery looks like, go to a public hospital in India. Because when you walk in the ER there, there are people literally lining the halls, you know, broken legs laying on a blanket in the hallway. People screaming. I still can hear people screaming in the ER the first time I visited. In this dramatic hospital setting, surrounded by human misery, when his relationship with Lisa was in its early days, Andrew got sick. Really sick. I ended up getting cholera while we were there. You know, I wasn't thinking straight, had temperatures of 104, and we were panicked, staying in the guest house of the hospital. There was no air conditioning that worked. It was 95 degrees in the building. We went over into the emergency room and called the doctor that was our host, and I got special treatment. I got taken into a, a little cot in the doctor's room in the back and got to stay there for a little while, got sent back to our guest room without a diagnosis because they didn't think it was possible for the visiting Americans to get cholera. Lisa did everything she could to take care of Andrew, despite the logistical and social challenges of being in such unfamiliar territory. But it wasn't easy. Lisa ends up having to go get on her bicycle, ride halfway across the city to go find some rehydration salts or juice, almost gets abducted on the way over, finally makes it back. Fortunately, all things worked out well, but just the whole experience of what this actual special treatment meant and the seeing the comparison between what that actually looked like compared to what you know everyone was normally getting, you know, I think that really made us interested in trying to do something to contribute to fixing this problem. You're listening to the inaugural episode of the Pandemic Tech Podcast. I'm producer Tavia Gilbert. And like you, over the past 12 months, I've heard and thought more about infectious disease, vaccinations, quarantining, and pandemics than I ever did in the pre-COVID era. But long before the coronavirus impacted the lives of virtually every person on the planet, these two physicians anticipated that a global pandemic could have a major impact on lives and livelihoods. And years before COVID, they'd started to work on how to manage that enormous threat. So in 2016, this couple founded an ambitious startup called Pandemic Tech. Their mission? To create a global network of infectious disease detectives and public health first responders and connect them with tech innovators all over the world so that when the worst-case scenario happened, neighborhoods and nations wouldn't be left on their own to deal with catastrophe. My name is Andrew Nerlinger, uh, the co-founder of Pandemic Tech. 
but I'm a physician entrepreneur. And really, I just consider us as innovators, champions of innovation in a space that before COVID really was neglected by the tech community and by the innovation community. We've been kind of riding and driving that charge. My name is Lisa McDonald. I'm a physician by training. I have spent my career in innovation. I'm co-founder at Pandemic Tech. We work from the position of having training in medicine, but translating that training into pieces of technology that affect people's lives. And in the context of pandemic tech, we're looking at supporting people who are developing technologies that address infectious disease threats. When health is threatened, especially with an infectious agent as insidious and invisible to the naked eye as COVID-19, People like Andrew and Lisa and the public health workers and technology entrepreneurs leading the field of pandemic response run toward the danger. They roll up their sleeves, get their hands dirty, and do what they can to keep people safe. Whether they're in Egypt, India, or Austin, infectious disease experts have a lot in common. They're curious, creative, and devoted to their communities. They're funny and collaborative, and they're incredibly brave. The Pandemic Tech Podcast tells their stories. In our first episode, we bring you the story of how Pandemic Tech came to be founded, explore what exactly it means to build a global health security ecosystem, and share how a community of people equipped with the skills and knowledge to help solve problems in global health security come together despite vast differences in language, culture, and politics. And we'll preview the conversations to come, highlighting some of the rock star scientists who work together to save lives around the globe. Let's go back to our pandemic tech founders. Health security and global health security is a really new thing, I think, to most people around the world, definitely to most Americans. Most have not actually heard of the term. And even the concept that a pandemic can impact literally every aspect of your life is something that, as of last February, people really didn't understand. And I didn't understand. We had been talking about this for years, the danger of a pandemic. But this bowled us over about what this has meant to daily life in the U.S. and around the world. I think that one of the reasons this area has been neglected prior to COVID-19 is really the idea that to invest in the prevention of something is always a difficult thing for people to wrap their minds around, you know, because what is the outcome? It's difficult to measure the impact of something that didn't happen. And so I think that's one of the reasons why now with COVID-19, where we're seeing the impact of something that did happen, it's easier for people to understand that there's value in investing in prevention. Before we go too much deeper into the story of Andrew and Lisa's work, I want to lean right into a potential point of conflict. The thing is, after a year of growing awareness about the way public health crises like the COVID-19 pandemic exacerbate the deep inequity in our own country and globally, my impulse is to be a bit wary whenever white, affluent, highly educated and connected people, people like Andrew and Lisa, start talking about technology solutions to big problems, especially problems that impact areas of the world that are under-resourced and vulnerable. Sure, technology has enormous benefits, but it also has the potential to be used in ways that deepen divides, take advantage of power imbalances, and focus financial benefit in one direction, 
which has historically been away from people of color. Is that what's happening at Pandemic Tech? Do these physician entrepreneurs see a cynical opportunity in the growing field of pandemic response to enrich themselves and their partners through highly profitable tech innovations? Are they showing up as saviors who have all the answers, bestowing the benefits of Western capitalism on developing nations? Andrew explains his aversion to such practices. The thesis is that people are best equipped to solve their own problems. The best solutions don't come from people looking outside and saying, here's how I think you should solve this problem, which has too frequently been the model in global health, quite frankly. People often come in and say, here's how you should do this. And that was kind of backwards to us. We thought it was much better to figure out a way to empower people who are the most familiar with the problems they're facing to solve their own problems. Pandemic tech's model isn't to distribute the answers to communities that can pay for them. Rather, it is to support innovative, creative problem-solving that comes from the wisdom and expertise of the community itself. We fundamentally think that an external group like Pandemic Tech shouldn't have the last word in what the best solutions are. You know, what you're really doing is you're partnering with local technology and innovation professionals who are leading that in their local communities. And you're really asking them to figure out, you know, what do you think the best ones are based on your extensive experience? And then how can we help you grow that and scale that globally? Andrew and Lisa are very aware of the dangers of a white savior mindset. The entire model of pandemic tech flips that ethos on its head by facilitating the ability of people to discover solutions that work best in their own neighborhoods. They then connect those innovative responders with the resources they need to create technology that offers hyper-local answers to the problems of infectious disease. And because a solution that might work in one community would be the perfect answer to the specific impact of an infectious disease in a neighborhood halfway around the world, Pandemic Tech aims to make sure that networks are communicating, sharing information, and helping to advance global health security. And so what we're really doing is focusing on those local partnerships, which is local capacity building, local development, and really ultimately will have local economic impact. Hopefully, though, it will provide the platform and the resources needed for the very, very best of these to scale into global solutions that other people can use outside of their countries. So how did Andrew and Lisa come up with the idea for Pandemic Tech? They recognized that there is great opportunity in areas of medicine and plenty of financing available in tech, but the money wasn't flowing to the places and people who needed it most and who could do the most good in their own communities. We came up with the idea in various stages, but the entire project started in 2016. And it was really looking at what happened after the Ebola outbreak in West Africa and some of the failures of the response. We had a really close friend that started a hospital in South Asia, and we were always stunned to see how frequently and how much time they had to spend raising philanthropic funds to support what they were working on. And it was small amounts of funds. This hospital only took about $25,000 a year, yet it was this enormous ask over and over and over. Every year, they had to basically go beg people to fund this thing. And we were looking at being in venture capital, we were kind of stunned. $25,000 is nothing in tech investment. It's just nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. And it just really stunned us that there was this disconnect between people basically asking for 
repeated handouts in the health security and in the infectious disease outbreak community, and then all the money that being spent in tech investment. And so we thought that there was really a problem there that we needed to figure out a way to solve. When Andrew and Lisa moved to the flourishing tech hub of Austin, Texas, they immediately recognized how much benefit there was to them being part of an innovation ecosystem. They had enormous resources in their backyard, and they started to imagine how much good could be done if there was support for creative tech innovation offered to the dedicated biosafety healthcare community working around the globe. Coming from the venture capital and the tech community, first in Houston, then we came to Austin in 2016, 2017, right around the same time frame. It was eye-opening coming to Austin. I mean, if you're an early stage startup person, you're an entrepreneur, an innovator in Austin, you have access to just an enormous number of resources. Everything you could possibly need is located within a five-minute drive of downtown Austin. Dozens of startup incubators, of entrepreneurship groups, the whole University of Texas, Austin Community College is here, lab facilities, prototyping facilities, venture capital investors, foundations, everything you have. What we wanted to do is actually find a way to translate the ecosystem in Austin and make those same types of resources available to people who were really on the front lines of dealing with this, but might not have access to the same types of resources. So what unique solution does Pandemic Tech provide? So the bigger project, the bigger picture we're looking at and how to essentially scale this pandemic tech model of supporting local innovators solving local challenges is to try to scale this through what we're calling a local to global model where we're identifying local communities with local ecosystems, for example, well, what does that mean in real life? Really, what we're trying to do is create these local accelerators, these local tech development programs that can then feed into something on a global scale. So you take the best things that are identified locally and the ones that are most amenable to scaling into different countries and then put them all together in a global program that helps them scale, find customers outside of their own markets, but then also return to their local communities having advanced their own technology and innovation. So it really kind of has both a local and a global benefit. But it's the fundamental model of starting locally, finding the very best innovations locally, helping them grow, and then taking the ones that are most amenable to scaling globally and helping them actually do that. And so this is really a formalization of what we're trying to do. We've been identifying these local ecosystems, these local communities. Two of the first are in Bangalore, India, and that will be led by Social Alpha, which is a really well-established technology program in Bangalore. And then another example would be in Abuja, Nigeria. Those are two places we're looking. And really um, what we're trying to do is these global accelerators, the point of them is to create these sustainable solutions and to help scale and commercialize ideas. When we see the enormous opportunity out there, it's really energizing. I mean, it really makes you want to do more and more and more. Their passion for contributing to global health through technology innovation can be tracked back to that frightening brush with cholera when Andrew and Lisa were med students working that summer in India. But that wasn't their only sobering experience. They both remember the gravity of what they witnessed working in the neonatal intensive care unit at the public hospital. At that time, it was a very different setting than what we were seeing in the United States. And it was just, you know, front and center to witness the disparities between the way that different countries are able to take care of newborn little babies. And so that struck a chord with me. Andrew had done some relief work after the earthquake in Pakistan. And it was just time after time really being witnessed with your own eyes to the different outcomes that people have in these terrible circumstances simply based on where they live. And so 
that resonated with me a lot. Andrew and Lisa are parents themselves, and the love and devotion they have for their daughter only increases their commitment to public health care. They believe that every parent should have health security or freedom from infectious disease threats irrespective of origin. I don't have the chance to get very meta when it comes to raising a child because generally we're we're down in the trenches and just dealing from, you know, thing to thing. But once you're a parent, you realize that anything that anytime she falls or anytime she has a fever, it's a different type of fear for myself. You know, I don't worry about those things, but for your child, you worry about them constantly. At its founding, Andrew and Lisa wanted pandemic tech to be part of the answer to the disparity in availability of resources. They saw it could answer a need for collaboration and support for innovators and direct resources to the area that needed them most. Andrew and Lisa had access to venture capital, so they could have started a healthcare technology company that would have helped people while enriching them, too. With their connections and expertise, they could have practiced medicine virtually anywhere and done a lot of good. So why get so deeply involved in infectious disease and biosafety? As they mentioned, an often overlooked part of medicine that brings them into grim places like public hospitals or areas of the globe without even the basics that people deserve. Clean water, access to adequate nutrition, education. Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> I'll say that for me throughout my life, I have a strong sense of fairness and justice. And if things seem like they're not fair, it really sticks with me. And I have a major problem with that. And infectious disease is inherently unfair. And so, you know, I have a problem with that and a problem with the fact that you see people affected differently here in the United States. But that was the thing that resonated with me. Both Lisa and Andrew saw how they benefited from an unfair system. When Andrew had cholera, he was given special treatment, moved into a more comfortable environment with air conditioning that other local people didn't have access to. They recognized the injustice of their privilege and how that privilege extends to entire geopolitical systems. You know, when we talked about India, I thought it was unfair the way that care impacted different people. And so infectious disease, from the perspective of a physician and of a scientist, I find it very interesting. But there is this whole other level on top of the actual science of transmission and the nature of each individual pathogen where you have every part of life that lays on top of that. You know, the way that it's experienced differently in different communities, the way that it's experienced differently globally, the way that it drives political division, you know, in this wider geopolitical context around infectious disease. And to me, that's the area I want to focus my time on. I know where your sense of fairness and justice came from, probably from your parents. They were both police officers in Houston. Yeah, maybe that's true. Raised with that sense of there is a right way for things to be, and there's good guys and there's bad guys, and you fight against the bad guys so you can help the good guys. Who are the bad guys that pandemic tech is fighting? Good question. I think it's a system that makes it so that infectious diseases flourish in places that are disadvantaged primarily. And I think if you solve for the disadvantaged, then you solve for the rest of the world. And I think that's true outside of the United States. And I think it's absolutely true inside of the United States. If you solve for disadvantaged populations and increase their access to fair and effective health care, then it percolates through the rest of society. And I think that's the case with COVID-19. And I think it's always been the case with infectious disease. As the idea for what pandemic tech could become, how it could answer health disparities began to take shape, a trip to Ethiopia led to a serendipitous breakthrough. 
and helped their vision crystallize. Our first project was in Ethiopia, and it really became the seed project for how we thought about pandemic tech. Lisa and I were over at the African Union attending a cancer conference hosted by the First Ladies of Africa. And it was a really great experience, but almost as a side trip, we went to visit what is the top research facility in Ethiopia. It's called Armour Hansen Research Institute. It's become really the top infectious disease research place in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. And we had been in contact with a virologist there named Dr. Ndamala Gadisa. And when we went and visited him, he shared with us this idea he had for building a prototype for a new diagnostic device for a parasitic disease called leishmaniasis, which is really only found typically in lower income countries, often in conflict zones, Syria, Afghanistan, Ethiopia. And it's a parasitic disease that can cause terrible skin disfiguration. And also there's kind of internal manifestations, of liver disease. It's, it's a very terrible disease, but one most people don't know about. So we had this idea for building a new prototype, but of course he had no access to prototyping facilities in Ethiopia. So the real breakthrough in the project came when we paired Dr. Gadisa up with Flinders University in Australia, which is a connection through South by Southwest and through some of our partners here in Austin. And they have this huge medical prototyping facility that's just incredible. And they essentially volunteered their time and their effort, paired us with one of the top 3D printing people at the university. And he's done for the last several years multiple rounds of prototyping. And it's still an ongoing project where people are now testing this thing that's being built in Australia. And it's, it's just been a really neat project. But to see the power of being able to take someone who understands the problems they're facing and has an idea for how best to solve it locally, and then pairing them with the selected resources they need from outside of their communities, that became the fundamental model of pandemic tech. Yeah, I'll add that the thing in that instance began with a back of the napkin drawing. The problem that they were facing is you take a sample from someone that you suspect has lismoniasis, and then you need to use a large amount of reagents and a long amount of time to see if you grow out the organism. And so it's that process of testing, waiting 10 days, using very expensive products to do that testing that they were trying to address. And so Dr. Gadiza came up with a very small sample container that would use less reagent, so it would be cheaper, and then it would use less time. So it would allow him, instead of that 10 days, to go into a village, test the leishmaniasis, and know whether or not there was a positive test on that day. So that changes the way that you provide care. You know, it keeps you from having to return back to a village to identify the person that you first tested, to give them the results of the test. And so it is a small innovation with a huge potential impact. Andrew and Lisa began to see that pandemic tech could serve as a virtual incubator, one that could offer scientists and innovators around the globe the kind of benefits that they themselves enjoyed collaborating with other experts in the vibrant incubator community of a highly resourced place like Austin, Texas. We would identify hot zone innovators that had ideas for technologies or maybe were working on technologies, and then by introductions by pairing them with resources, we would really get under the hood of what they were trying to do and assist them to get those technologies into a commercializable format. And so in my day job, I work for a healthcare technology commercialization incubator at the University of Texas at Austin, and we'll have startup companies come in and maybe they're early on in the process of forming their company and developing their technology. And we put a team of people around them to help them through that process. And it's a process that is helped by teams. It's helped by, you know, connecting people with resources and having access to those resources. And we do a similar thing at Pandemic Tech and especially did it early on where we would put teams of people with 
with expertise, subject matter expertise, prototyping expertise, all the different things that come together to allow people to develop a thing and get that thing to where it needs to be. And that was the take that we had at Pandemic Tech as well. As their business plan began to take shape, they began to connect with like-minded public health experts and tech entrepreneurs. And that was when they met Sarah Gerwig, who joined the Pandemic Tech team and serves as senior advisor. I actually met Andrew and Lisa during the time of Ebola. I was working on a project with Baylor College of Medicine, so I come from the academic side where philanthropy looks like grant dollars, and we worked really hard to get grant funding for various things. In global health, it's largely underfunded as well. And we were working on an innovation that was set in West Africa. So we ended up taking it to Liberia. We had a mobile unit that was an expandable shipping container that was a clinic as an Ebola treatment unit because they were having a lot of trouble with infection control, just utilizing tents that weren't air conditioned in the middle of a hot African summer. So we came up with a new invention. And I think around that time, I had met Andrew and Lisa and was talking through some of the difficulties, the true difficulties that we were having as far as implementation goes. And that's how it came to be. Sarah's experience in academia made her recognize the need for a more sustainable approach to global health security. After seeing how health grants were distributed, Sarah recognized the wisdom of pandemic tech's more sustainable strategy of finding the best ideas from people on the ground and scaling them up. I think it's really important to prioritize finding a need first and then addressing that need versus the more piecemeal global health approach that is, we're going to write a grant and we hope we get this money and then we'll go ahead and figure it out from there. Global health is very piecemeal as far as I went to this place, I saw this thing, and therefore I wrote a grant for this. And you need more grant funding, so you keep writing a grant around the same thing. The differentiator with pandemic tech is when you all see a need, it's based on, like Andrew was saying in Ethiopia, a scientist that's there or an individual that is on the ground that is dealing with the issue every day. And instead of trying to solve yourself, you're actually connecting individuals who can work with that person that's going to stay there. Pandemic Tech's collaborative, scalable approach means that the wheel doesn't have to be reinvented every time crisis hits. The work that you're doing is sustainable, and I think that's a huge problem within the global health sphere is it is fragmented and piecemeal. Projects are piecemeal. Efforts are piecemeal even Ebola response. A lot of what we've seen, what I've seen with COVID response is we already solved for that during Ebola. Why is there no larger framework where we're able to scale the things that we did for Ebola on a more global level to respond to COVID, contact tracing, supply chain management, all kinds of things. So I think that within global health, that's still a huge issue. The exciting thing for me with pandemic tech is you guys have carved a space for yourself specifically in innovation and technology, but you're also working very closely on the ground with individuals who are going to do it because they care about their individual community, but are also interested in a larger framework where if their work is able to scale and move to a more global level, they want to be part of that because they've seen firsthand what it looks like. As they began to understand just how important, how groundbreaking it was to focus on working with experts on the ground, 
Another successful project helped the pandemic tech team recognize the need for public-private partnerships in order to extend their reach and maximize impact. Just working within one of those areas was nowhere near as effective, dynamic, or responsive as what could spark when public and private resources were brought together. One of the really transformational collaborations that we had was with the World Health Organization's Regional Office for Africa. And we had gotten to know the team and the individual, Dr. Marendrick Chibi, who was running the WHO Africa Innovation Challenge. And it was his idea. He just decided to launch this, had the blessing from Dr. Moedi, who's the WHO Africa director, and essentially put out an open call for anyone who wanted to be recognized as one of the top innovators in Africa in the healthcare space. And WHO was expecting about 200 applications for this. And they would have thought that was a success. Instead, they got 2,600 applications for this within a four-week period in November 2018. And, and we're just stunned by the, the interest in this. There was no prize. The prize was getting to present at a conference and be recognized as one of the top 30 innovators. And yet there was still this enormous interest. And so Pandemic Tech really helped quite a bit and had a lot of help from the Austin community too in, first of all, judging and evaluating these 2,600 applications because that's no small task to actually read through them. I think I read about 300 or 400 myself. Lisa did the same thing. It was a lot of work. But the really interesting feedback we got from WHO and why we're still working together with them, Dr. Chibi, who's an entrepreneur at heart as well and a health expert, made the point that so now WHO has done its work. We've identified this pipeline, this huge amount of interest, these incredible number of really excellent innovations. But WHO is a global health organization. They do not have the internal capacity or capability to help these groups scale. But I know who does, and it's groups in the venture space, it's groups in the entrepreneurship community, it's pandemic tech. And so that's really been the root of that partnership is looking at groups like pandemic tech or other groups in the entrepreneurship community to help these companies scale, help these early stage innovators scale. And that's really been the need for public-private partnership that we've seen. The public sector does a really great job of bringing these innovators and pulling them out from literally every country in Africa but then someone needs to carry the baton from there. And that's really been our role. Lisa underscores just how important it is for public and private organizations to work hand in hand. There are two different aspects of solving infectious disease challenges. One of them is the scientific aspect of solving the challenge itself. And the second is economic development. So it's health security and economic development. And if money is pumped into a community and they're seeing prosperity on that end and they're equipped to solve the health security challenges, those two things will solve for pandemic infectious disease. And so the idea that we make private investment into technologies that were previously supported through ongoing public funds is critically important. And it's giving people the economic drivers of success to address the health security threats. It's a two-pronged approach that the more that I think about it, there really is something there. And we try to recreate the same thing here in Texas. And certainly the goal is to recreate that with pandemic tech. So driving economic development through scientific technologies that address the health security threat. Partnering with the tech world has added benefit for the people who work in tech innovation themselves. Technology is rapidly transforming our political and cultural landscape, often undermining, even potentially destroying community. And some forward-thinking tech investors are increasingly searching for projects that allow them to build up not only financial equity, but social equity. The partners Pandemic Tech works with want to use their resources 
to do real good in the world. One of the cool things about pandemic tech is it actually has given the opportunity for people in the tech community to give back as well. There's a pretty significant desire to get involved in this issue, and it goes two ways. You know, you ask the health security community, how do you get involved in entrepreneurship? And the answer is often, I have no idea. But it's the same thing. Go to the tech community and say, hey, do you guys want to get involved in health security? Do you know how to do that? And the answer is, yeah, we would love to do it. We just don't know how to do it. And so we think that Pandemic Tech and other groups like TechGHS are really vehicles for people in this tech community with enormous resources to get involved in what really is fundamentally a niche area, a very specific, specific issue and a very, very small community. So this definitely is a two-way street. Andrew and Lisa haven't just been building a global first responder network. They've been building a community. And their funders themselves have, in some cases, even gotten directly involved. People like venture capital investor Bill Wood, a key player in the company's development. Bill didn't just offer his financial backing. He wanted to get engaged directly in the development of pandemic tech. When pandemic tech was still a concept and still growing, he was willing to provide us with the support we needed to continue growing it based on faith and based on our stories about what these problems were really like, Bill was willing to travel with us. So we went to visit Egypt in 2018 as part of a biosafety and biosecurity training program that we were working on with Cairo University. And so our advisor from Mexico, Luis Ochoa Carrera, gave a multi-day biosafety and biosecurity training seminar at one of the big hospitals in downtown Cairo. And Bill attended that. And one of the things he said and was really powerful is he said, I never really understood what it meant for what you were talking about doing. You know, I get that you were trying to build biosafety and biosecurity capacity, but actually getting to meet the people at the university, see what the training was like, and see how absolutely critical it was that they were properly equipped to handle and protect themselves and protect their communities from these dangerous viruses and bacteria. That was really eye-opening, being able to understand how important it was you were actually doing by getting to meet people and understand not only the impact of the work, but understand how much the Egyptian trainees were interested in getting this because they wanted to protect themselves too, and they wanted to really understand and receive this training. Andrew sees the value in getting more funders invested in technology that advances global health security as well as to increase access to networks that will offer resources as innovators become entrepreneurs. I think it's really important to us to continue to support programs that build capacity, whether they're for-profit or not. But one of the things we really want to do is make sure to address this huge unmet need for people to actually be entrepreneurs in health security. And I think that's really become our goal, is to facilitate, make people more comfortable, make investors feel more confident in investing in health security technologies, and then make people who are innovators in this space feel like it's actually a viable option to try to be an entrepreneur in this area, to try to come up with a financial sustainable solution. And fundamental to that is the idea that I might actually get investment to do this. And so that's been a critical part of what we've been focusing on. And then what COVID has done is actually taken that situation 
and put it in juxtaposition with some of the economic factors. And so now not only is there an argument that you should be doing this from a moral perspective, there's also an argument that you should be doing this from a financial and an economic perspective, which is a pretty powerful argument when you're looking at people who are interested in not only funding health security innovations, but investing in health security innovations. Because that's really what our true long-term goal is with pandemic tech, is creating a platform that makes it possible and really encourages investment and some of these entrepreneurs who are solving health security problems. Where we see pandemic tech headed is to more frequently invest in technologies. So we want to be the leader in entrepreneurship and health security. We want to be, and we are now, a group that can find the best innovations throughout the world, can make investments into those technologies, and then can encourage and enable other people who are possibly in a position to make even larger scale investments to put funds in solving these problems. And the thing that we're really trying to do differently is make sure that everything that we're touching has some type of financial sustainability angle and is preferably an investable technology because that's going to be the thing that really lasts. Something that has a proven need in the market in which it's in, something that has been able to generate revenue so the innovators are not having to go back and ask for funds. You know, every year at the end of the year at, at grant time, you know, they're actually gaining customers and trying to do positive things in a way that it's going to last for a lot longer. And so our goal is to really become that central point for investment in health security. The idea is to take the local models to pull the cream of the crop in the innovations and teams that we really see have capability to scale into more of an international and global company to solve these solutions on a more sustainable level and build a global accelerator with these companies and teams to commercialize the technologies that we can utilize everywhere in the world. It's precisely because infectious disease and biosafety have been so long neglected that the community has remained small enough for this innovative business to already have had a global impact and for the Pandemic Tech Podcast to feature the world's leading rock star scientists. The global health security community is really small and it probably has grown significantly now, but at its core several years ago, you know, everyone knew each other and everyone still knows each other. And so we'll be meeting and talking with some of the really the leaders in the global health security space. But what we were really hoping to do is use this podcast to introduce people who have been living health security and who are really on the front lines of fighting pandemic infectious disease and have been doing this for large parts of their lives. People like Dr. Iwale Tamori, who is a very famous Nigerian virologist and was one of our first team members of Pandemic Tech. He was one of the early virus hunters combing Africa to find the cause of these terrible hemorrhagic fever outbreaks. And still, to this day, despite his retirement status, spends probably more time than he did pre-retirement answering questions for government leaders around the world, World Health Organization, about how to respond to these situations. We're going to hear from Luis Ochoa Carrera in Mexico, who runs biosafety and biosecurity at the largest laboratory network in Mexico. And while that seems like it could be maybe a less than interesting job, you know, take a look at COVID and the fact that now there are thousands and thousands of laboratory workers who have never been trained in handling something as dangerous as the SARS-CoV virus, as COVID, that are routinely risking their lives to handle these samples safely and make sure that there isn't an escape of the virus or that someone doesn't, for example, steal the virus. And what is the challenge of securing samples of this virus in Mexico or in places around the world? 
The Pandemic Tech Podcast will bring listeners the real-world stories of global health security, the work Pandemic Tech is facilitating, and the networks it's creating. It will explore the questions of what it means to be involved in innovation, in biosafety or biosecurity. Andrew and Lisa and their partners want people to better relate to those subjects, and they especially want young scientists or someday scientists to recognize how much opportunity there is to make a difference in small and large contexts. They hope the leading infectious disease scientists will feature on the Pandemic Tech Podcast will be an inspiration. People like Dr. Britta Lassman. In next week's episode, Dr. Lassman describes what happened the night that ProMed, a social media site where infectious disease and public health experts report breaking health news, first started pinging with the earliest alerts about the new disease threat that would soon become known worldwide as COVID-19. So actually, the first report that was sent out on ProMed was sent on December 30th, 2019. And that was sent by Dr. Marjorie Pollock, who is our ProMed subject matter expert, who is based in New York. And she picked up signals. She was notified by colleagues in China and then picked up signals on Chinese social media that very much reminded her of SARS and composed a very detailed report that went out on ProMed on the 30th of December. I think it was close to midnight when she hit the send button. And that was considered to be the first detailed report on what was happening and also triggered some of the international investigations and really alerted the international infectious diseases community. So at the time when she sent it, I was actually skiing in Austria. And I remember because of the time difference, I saw it when I had breakfast in the morning. And Marjorie is really well regarded in that space. And she is a true subject matter expert. So it's always worrisome when you read something like that from someone who has so much experience in that field. And so I remember I was like, oh, we will keep watching that. Hopefully it won't be SARS again. And, and that's how it all started and then continued to evolve. We look forward to bringing you the full story in our next episode. In the meantime, if you like today's Pandemic Tech Podcast, we'd be grateful if you'd follow us and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Those simple ways of supporting our program are a great help in reaching new audiences. This has been the Pandemic Tech Podcast. This episode written and produced by Katie Flood and Tavia Gilbert. Executive produced by TalkBox. Music by Alexander Filipiak. Mix and Master by Brian Barney. Thanks for listening.